Welcome to Slay Church. We are so glad that you're tuning in today and pray that wherever you are, this message will bless you. If this impacts you in any way, we would love to hear about it. Send an email to mystory@slatechurch.com. Awesome. Well, hey, why don't you go ahead, grab a seat, give someone a high five, tell them you're glad to see them in church, tell them Happy New Year. We doing well today? We excited to be in church? Awesome. I'm excited. Did everybody have a good Christmas? Wasn't it awesome? You know, um, we had a great Christmas as a church, didn't we? What a great Christmas season it's been, uh, you know, from our, everything from our Christmas production, which seems like ages ago now, and it was amazing to see all the people impacted by that and our great Christmas Eve service last week and all the other various Christmas things that we've been having. We've been having an incredible, incredible Christmas season as a church, but now we're on the other side of Christmas, right? And everybody said, amen. Some people are happy about it. Some people aren't. I don't know. Um. We're on the other side of Christmas. Just yesterday, I was in Canadian Tire, and I heard music playing that wasn't Christmas music. And it was kind of jarring, right? I was like, what is this music that's playing? And um, it was actually California Love by Tupac, which I thought was a pretty bold choice for Canadian Tire. But uh, whatever, I was, I was happy that it was something other than Christmas music. And so that was great. But listen, I am so excited for church tonight. I'm excited for what God wants to speak to us, as uh, Victoria was mentioning, it's the last Sunday of the decade, which I actually think is something significant. I mean, just take a minute and think where you were at the beginning of this decade, right? Maybe, um, maybe you weren't even in church. Maybe um, you didn't even believe in God. I don't know. Think of all that God has done in your life over these last 10 years. But then take a minute and think about where you want to be at the end of this coming decade, and just think about the dreams that you might have for your life, the desires that you have, the things that you want to see accomplished. But more than that, think where do you want your relationship with God to be at the end of this coming decade? Where is it going to be? Is it going to be deeper? Is it going to be stronger? Is your faith going to be even more developed than it is now? I really hope that that's what your desire actually is. And uh, the thing is that when we, when we think about that, it can seem pretty daunting. But we got to remember that we get there one little baby step at a time, right? We're going we're gonna to get to that place very gradually, just one step at a time, but we have to be actually intentional about it. We have to put some action to our desires and our dreams and our, uh, our thoughts. And maybe actually you here today is actually just you taking a baby step closer to where you want to be with God. Maybe it's not going to be a giant leap for you, but you know, enough baby steps over time add up to something pretty incredible over the course of 10 years. And so I think, um, you know, there's that famous quote that we always overestimate what we can do in a day, but we underestimate what we can do in 10 years, right? And I think that that's so true. But tonight, I just want to encourage you to just lean in uh, with, I, I don't know, maybe you have no faith. Maybe you're here and you don't even believe in God. I just want to encourage you to lean in. Maybe take a baby step towards him tonight and don't underestimate how powerful that can be and what it can do in your life, all right? So I'm excited to preach this message. I do hope that you're excited to receive it tonight. And we're going to jump right in by turning in our Bibles to Joshua 14. And I'm going to start reading from verse 10, and I'm going to read verse 10 to verse 12. And we love 
being able to read the Bible here at Slate Church. It's, it's so powerful. It's God's word. And, um, you know, you'll never come here and uh, not hear a message that is based in Scripture. And so Joshua 14, verse 10, uh, this is what it says. This is a man named Caleb who's speaking. And he says this. It says, now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses while Israel moved about in the wilderness. So here I am today, 85 years old. I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. If you're taking notes tonight, you can go ahead and you can title this message. Write down the title, Give Me the Hill Country. Give Me the Hill Country. Why don't we pray and we're going to jump into the rest of it. Jesus, we thank you so much for who you are and we thank you that you're with us here tonight. Father, we just pray that you would speak to us, that you would reveal yourself to us. Lord, that we would have a fresh encounter with you and your Holy Spirit in this place. And that we would truly leave this place changed after encountering you. Thank you for all that you've done in this past year in our lives and in our church. We praise you for it. And we look forward eagerly to what you have in store and all that's ahead for us in 2020. In your mighty name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. I, listen, I, I don't know about you, but I've got this kind of personality where sometimes I'll just go down like a rabbit hole of something and I'll get interested in something for a period of time. And I get really interested, quite involved in this thing. And eventually I get bored with it and I give it up and I move on, right? Is anybody else like that? Few people. And uh, Nate put his hand up real strong there. I saw that right out of the, my peripheral. I could not miss that. Um, you know, this is how I am. And lately, uh, my latest sort of deep dive in life has been around mountaineers and Antarctic explorers, okay? Uh, like, this has just been the thing. I've just been, like, researching it, and I've been watching YouTube videos about exploration and about, you know, living outside in the wilderness and all of these things. In fact, Victoria and I, uh, we sat down in our basement. We, you know, turned on the TV and fired up YouTube. We were going to watch something. I don't know what. And one of the, uh, you know, videos in the watch history, the video, it was, it was a two-hour long video. I didn't watch all of it, just so you know. But the video was, uh, man spends two years alone in wilderness building cabin, okay? And she laughed her head off at me for this. And I looked at her like, what, you don't think I could do that? And she was like, no, I don't think that you could do that. And honestly, it sort of ticked me off, you know? And so I was upset about it. I was thinking about it this morning as I stood in the bathroom, and I was putting moisturizer on my face because the cold air made my skin dry. And I realized that maybe she had a bit of a point here, okay? And... Uh, but nonetheless, I've just been, like, so interested in this, like, mountain climbing. And, you know, I've been saying to Victoria, like, yeah, maybe I'll just climb a mountain or something like that. But then every time I think about climbing a mountain, um, I think about the only time I ever got anywhere close to climbing a mountain. It wasn't really climbing. It was more walking. And I realized that climbing an actual mountain would probably be a pretty bad idea for me. 
Uh, I remember a number of years ago uh, when Victoria and I were living in Sweden, I went on a trip, as I did every year that we lived in Sweden. I went on a week-long trip to a ski resort, a mountain. It's called Ore. It's Sweden's biggest mountain, biggest ski resort. And, uh, I mean, it's not small. It's a great place. It's fantastic. Uh, But I had a sort of mountain climbing experience there, um, you know, that sort of told me I probably am not fit for Everest yet, okay? And uh, so I got there, I was with some friends, and, you know, we didn't go for, like, the small hills, okay? We went to ski the good stuff. I love skiing. We wanted to ski where it was great, and so uh, we were up early. We were at the at the ski resort right when it opened, and to begin with, we took a, the gondola up, and the gondola ride was, it's 20 minutes, right? So it's, it's not small. We're in this gondola for 20 minutes going up the side of the mountain. We get up there, and that's not the end because now we get in another gondola. It goes for another 10, 15 minutes up the side of this mountain. It's, it is big. It's this very large mountain. We get to the top, and finally, you know, you feel like you've made it to the top. It's high. Um, you are, like, ab- above some of the clouds in the valley. It's awesome. You're on top of the world. But we know that there's still, like, another top that's even a little bit higher than what we were at there. And we're like, that's where we want to go. And most of the time, there's actually some, like, snowmobile ski patrol there. And they actually sit around. And if you pay them some money, they'll snowmobile you up to the actual top. And so generally you get there and you give them some, you know, some Swedish money, like the equivalent of five bucks. And they have ropes attached to the back of their snowmobiles, and you hold on to the rope, and they drive forward while you're on your skis, and you're going up the side of this mountain. It's awesome, okay? They do things differently in Sweden. It's great. And um, so normally in years prior, that's what we had done to get to the very top. Uh, But this year, for some reason, these guys weren't there, and we decided, whatever, we're just going to climb this anyways. And so uh, we're like, how hard can it be, right? We can just walk up to the very top. And so, you know, we popped our skis off, put them over our shoulder, and we started climbing. And we started climbing and climbing and climbing. And honestly, like, it wasn't that steep, but I have never been more tired in my entire life, okay? I felt like such a baby the whole time. I was, like, so overdramatic. I felt like I was in the death zone on Everest. Like, I couldn't breathe. Uh, It was a horrible, terrible, terrible experience trying to hike up this stupid mountain. It wasn't fun anymore. I don't want to do this. It was like the worst thing, but we just kept going and kept going and kept, what what felt like 47 hours, finally, we kept going and we finally made it to the top of this place. I have a picture of the little hut that's on the top. You guys can go ahead and you can throw that up on the screen. We finally got to this place and, uh, Uh, that's not the view. That is the view. And those are my skis there. And it's beautiful up there. It's fantastic. I'm not in the picture because I'm literally inside crying about how tired I was uh, while all the Swedish people ate cinnamon buns. And that's actually not a lie. Uh, But finally, I made it to the top of this mountain. But I realized when we did this hike that uh, mountain climbing is probably not something that's actually in my future, okay? Now, as much as I would like to go out and climb a mountain, uh, a real physical mountain, the truth is that there are other types of mountains in my life, and perhaps there are mountains in your life, that actually we try our best to avoid 
as much as possible. And I'm not talking about a physical mountain necessarily, but I'm talking about a lot of the metaphorical mountains that actually exist that we have to face. Mountains are often used in the image, uh, as an image of something that is in front of us that is immovable, uh, an, an immovable difficulty, a problem, uh, a circumstance, a situation that is so daunting, that is so difficult, that is so immense in our lives that a mountain is really the only word that we have to possibly describe it. And, and we understand this because anybody that's ever stood at the base of a mountain understands the immense scale that that thing actually represents. And perhaps you're here today and you find yourself standing at the edge of one of those metaphorical mountains of difficulty in your life. Maybe you've got mountains of responsibility that are standing in front of you. Maybe it's a mountain of shame. Maybe it's a mountain of guilt. Maybe it's a mountain of defeat or of regret uh, or, or something, uh, some insecurity that's standing in front of you and it feels like you're not going to possibly be able to get through it. Maybe the year 2020 is just looming large on the horizon like a giant mountain and instead of being excited for this new year and excited for this new decade, you're actually approaching it uh, with a lot of worry, with a lot of anxiety and you're afraid of what might be or what might not be in this coming year for you. Uh, I don't know what it might, what it might be but I I think that today we really can actually take a note out of Caleb's life who we read about earlier in the book of Joshua because when Caleb sees the difficult challenge that was ahead of him the proverbial mountain the obstacle he doesn't back down instead full of faith and certain that God is greater than the struggle he declares God give me the hill country that the Lord promised on that day you see at this point Caleb was 85 years old when he said this. He was an old man, but he still has this incredible faith and this amazing vitality about him. And we can read that this great faith and assurance in God was really a hallmark of Caleb's life for his entire life. 45 years prior to this event, the nation of Israel had just escaped slavery in Egypt thanks to the power of God and the obedience of Moses. And now the entire nation was en route to the promised land, which was the land that God had promised to give to them. But this land, of course, was occupied by other nations at the time, and they would have to be defeated if Israel was going to actually enter and occupy the land. And God had spoken that the land would be theirs, that God would go with them. Moses, who was leading the Israelites, sent out 12 spies to go into the land and to scope it out so they could really develop a strategy and see uh, the nations that were in the land and all of these different things. And, and so the spies went, the 12 of them went, and then they returned. And all of the spies said that the land was an absolute paradise. It was beautiful. It was flowing with milk and honey. You could hardly understand how amazing this place was. But then they said that the people who lived there were like giants compared to the Israelites. That they would be too powerful to be defeated. That there's no way they could possibly go forward. Everyone said this except for two of them. One was named Joshua and one was named Caleb. Again, Caleb at this point is 40 years old. He's much younger. But he says, we can do this. We, we can absolutely do this. We read about this in Numbers 13.30. It says, then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land. For we can certainly do it. Caleb had this great faith that God was with them and that and that what God promised that he would come to fulfill his promise to them. Caleb was up for the challenge. He was ready to do whatever it took to be obedient to God and follow his direction. 
but the others didn't believe. And because of their lack of faith, they had to spend 40 years wandering around in the wilderness. I don't know about you, but I want to have the kind of faith that's a lot more like Caleb's than it is all the others. I want to have an attitude that says, in Jesus' name, it can be done. I want to live in victory and live my life from victory, even before the battle is even being fought. Knowing that God is on my side, and if God is for me, then who can stand against me? You know, faith is an incredible life giver to us. Psychologists studied several hundred people who attended church, and he divided them into groups from least optimistic and faith-filled to most optimistic and faith-filled. And he found that 90% of the faith-filled people were still alive at the age of 85, but only 34% of the negative people even made it to that age. Another study was done that tracked 2,000 people who were over the age of 65. And the study noted that those who were optimistic and faith-filled had better health habits, had lower blood pressure, had better immune systems, were less than half as likely to die as their pessimistic counterparts. It was found that if you have a positive attitude, you're more likely to live a decade longer than if you don't. I mean, this is a long time. This is some serious stuff. Twelve spies were sent out. But only two had faith. 45 years later, Caleb was still as faith-filled as ever. Even at 85 years old, he knew that his best days were not yet behind him. And he was still eager to step into all that God had for him. And what happened to the other 10 spies? They all died. Not a single one of them made it. Not a single one of them was able to enter the promised land. Faith is an amazing life giver. Let's be the kind of faith-filled people who, like Caleb, are willing to ask for the hill country, where the challenge lies. He was up for the challenge. He asked for the hardest enemy in the most difficult territory. It's a lot harder to fight and to conquer in the hill country than it is on flat ground. But Caleb was up for it. He would have to face the Anakites, who were written about in Numbers 13, when the people said, we saw the descendants of the Anakites there. We seem like grasshoppers next to them. But this didn't bother Caleb because he knew that God was bigger. So Caleb at 85, here he is. He's asking for this great, great challenge. I mean, you would think at 85 years old, you think that he would be asking for a condo in Fort Lauderdale or something like that. But he doesn't. He knows that he still has another battle to fight before he's going to check out. You know, a lot of times in life, we really wish that God would just sort of take the struggle away, don't we? And we wish that we would have a problem-free life. We wish that we had like a, a hakuna matata kind of life. But actually, that would be a pretty boring life overall. And it's not the way that life works. And very often, it's through working hard to solve problems that we actually grow. In fact, every single problem that we face is actually an invitation for us to say, I choose to have faith in this situation. So perhaps instead of asking God to remove the problem, we need to ask for the hill country. And we need to develop a faith that says God will be with me wherever I go. we got to remember, even as the Israelites were being chased out of Egypt by the Egyptians, they came up against a pretty big problem. The problem was the Red Sea. They didn't know how they were going to get around it. But we need to remember that God didn't remove the Red Sea. He opened it. See, just because God hasn't removed the problem from your life doesn't mean that he won't provide a way through it. Whoever you are, wherever you are on your journey... I really believe that God wants to make you a threat to all the forces of injustice and apathy and complacency that keeps our world from flourishing. But we need to be willing to ask for the hill country and face whatever challenge might be in front of us. 
And I really think that as we do, and as we maintain this faith that God is in control and he is greater than whatever is against us, I think that a few different things will be revealed to us. And the first thing, I think, is that the hill country will reveal what it is that you're made of. You know, when you squeeze a tube of toothpaste, you find out what's inside. And in much the same way, when a person gets squeezed through adversity, you can also tell what's on the inside of them. It's amazing how a challenge or a mountain in our life will reveal who we actually are. And I mean like who we really are, right? Not, not the, the who, who we pretend to be to the world, not the brave face that sometimes we put on, not the carefully curated version of ourselves that we post about on social media or any of these things, but actually who we honestly are. The, the us that maybe we try to hide from everyone else in the world, that maybe we even try to hide away from God. But I wonder who are you when things are not going so great in your life? Who are you when things are not going according to plan, when the pressures of life really start to build up? Who are you deep down, and who are you becoming? I love that we can see who Caleb was. We get to read about it in, in Numbers 14, 6. It says, Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jeponah, uh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. We see that Caleb has this deep, this incredible foundation of faith upon which he stands in his life. We also read in 14, verse 24, it says, But because my servant Caleb... This is God speaking. Because my servant Caleb had a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. Don't you love that we can read that Caleb had a different spirit? It was a different spirit. It wasn't a spirit of fear like everybody else had, but it was a spirit of faith. I really think Caleb had the kind of spirit that's written about in 2 Timothy 1.7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And because of this different spirit, he was able to receive the promise from God. You know, I've said it many times before, but I'll say it again. I really hope that when I go about my life, as I go about my day today, wherever I might find myself, I hope that people who see me would recognize a different spirit about me than what the masses of people in the world live with. I really hope that when I go to a cafe, when I go wherever I might go, that people would say there is something different. I can't quite put my finger on what it might be, but there is a different spirit about that person, and that it would actually be the Spirit of God alive and living in me that is overflowing out of me and that shines bright into this world. I wonder, are, are you the kind of person that when presented with a problem, do you respond with a different kind of spirit? Do you respond with the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You know, these are things that are very countercultural to us today and you know, when we face problems, I can honestly say that my first response is not joy, that my first response is not always patience, it's not always self-control, but I really believe that we need to remember that our circumstances are temporary, but who we are becoming is eternal. You got to put your faith in God and allow him to fill you with his spirit, filled to overflowing with the joy of the Lord. 
Do you know that joy is contagious? You ever get yourself around somebody who's just joy-filled and it just like rubs off on you in the right way? Isn't that awesome? It's amazing how we just want to get around people who are just so full of joy in their lives. I think it's great. And in fact, there was a 20-year study that was done of more than 4,700 people. And this study found out just how contagious joy actually is. What, what it found out is that people who become happy make it more likely that their friends will become happy too. Because happiness travels through a, through a relational network like ripples on a pond travel. It's an incredible thing. But more than that, joy will actually travel through three degrees of separation. So you're likely to increase in happiness even if a friend of a friend of a friend gets happier. What a powerful realization that is. Imagine in this room how many people are represented by three degrees of separation that can get more joy-filled and happy as we allow the joy of the Lord to become our strength and we live lives that are overflowing with joy. In fact, the study found that uh, having a happy friend is more likely to increase your happiness than getting a $5,000 raise. Isn't that an absolutely incredible thing? I think that that is amazing. I wonder, what, what are you made of? You know, we don't know what it is that we're capable of until we have to cope. Sometimes we have to go through difficult things, but I really believe that God can redeem these things to, and use them to shape us to be the people that he needs us to be. And nowhere do we see this on display more than in the Bible. You know, God could have let Abraham stay in Ur. He could have allowed Moses to stay in the Pharaoh's court, Aaron in the safety of the crowd. David away from Goliath, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out of the fiery furnace, Daniel out of the lion's den, Elijah away from Jezebel, Nehemiah out of captivity, Jonah out of the whale, John the Baptist away from Herod, Esther from being threatened, Jeremiah from being rejected, Paul from being shipwrecked. But instead, God used each of these trials to bring people closer to himself and to produce perseverance and character and hope in every single one of them. Think for a moment about the story of Joseph. Joseph was the favorite son of his father, and he was envied by his, by his brothers, and Joseph had dreams of being the one that everybody else would bow down to, and then he gets kidnapped by his brothers, and he's sold as a slave in the home of Potiphar. He loses his home. He loses his culture. He loses his security. He loses his status, but what is it that Joseph has let, left? He still has a gift left, and it makes all the difference. See, the Bible tells us that the Lord was with Joseph. Joseph isn't alone through it all. I love it because this serves as an example to us of what happens to someone who loses everything but finds out that God is enough. We see that they experience the power and the presence of God in their life in an incredible way. See, God wasn't at work producing the circumstances that Joseph wanted. But God was at work in bad circumstances producing the Joseph that God wanted. And I really believe that the same is true for us today. When we face bad and terrible circumstances in our life, God may not be uh, creating those uh, circumstances, but in the midst of those circumstances, he can actually be creating the us that he is actually calling us to be. Of course, the second thing that the hill country will, re will reveal in us is this. The hill country reveals the depth of your relationships. If I can just go back to the mountain climbing uh, thought for a moment, uh, speaking out of my vast experience, uh, after watching a five-minute YouTube video, <laughs> I know that there is this concept in mountaineering that is called uh, a rope team. 
okay? And rope team is a lot like what it sounds like. It's when you are uh, climbing a mountain or you're crossing a, a, a glacier that has all of these crevasses and all of these things. You establish what is a rope team, which means it's you and at least one other person, and you are roped together. You're tied together. And it's at least you and another, but it can actually be many more people than just that, where you're all actually connected by a rope. And the reason for this is that it's actually safer to climb a mountain or to cross a glacier in this way. Because if you're tied off to another person and one person slips and falls into one of the crevasses or something like that, the other person ideally is able to stop them from falling and is able to pull them out. And of course, the more people that you're roped off to, the safer it is. Because all of a sudden, if you're roped off to five people and one person falls, it's very easy for those four people to rescue the other person. It's a, it's a very safe way to climb. It's much safer to climb a mountain with someone else. And in the same way, as we navigate the challenges of life and as we climb the metaphorical mountains of life, it's a lot safer and much more powerful if we do it in relationship with other people. Don't do life alone. I wonder, who are you connected to today? And by the way, connectedness is a lot different than just knowing a bunch of people, okay? There's a big difference between these things. People might, you, you might have many contacts in a whole bunch of different networks in your life, and that's fantastic. But just knowing people is a lot different than being connected to people, right? Knowing people is like climbing a mountain with a whole bunch of people, and that's great, and that's fine, and that's a lot of fun. But at the end of the day, you're not actually connected or roped off to any of them, so it doesn't actually become any safer. But we need to actually work at developing life-giving relationships in our lives. We need to rope ourselves off to others so that if we should fall, they can actually pick us up again. You know, the hill country is rough terrain. It's not always an easy road. And life ahead can be difficult. It can be painful. Sometimes it can blindside you. It can be tough. It can be overall just terrible at times. But when there's people around you who are actually able to pick you up and encourage you, perhaps in some cases they got to drag you for a little while. I don't know what it might be, but it's amazing how that can actually change your life. One of the main things that distinguishes happy people from unhappy people is the presence of life-giving, joy-filled relationships in their life. I love what Proverbs 18 in the message translation of the Bible says about this. And this is so to the point. I love this about the message. It says, loners who care only for themselves spit on the common good. <laughs> and John says in 1 John 3:14 that anyone who does not love remains in death. You know, when we live in isolation... We're a lot more likely to give in to temptation. We're a lot more likely to become discouraged. We're more likely to be selfish. We're more likely to spend money in greedy ways on ourselves. And uh, we're more likely to give up in the face of a challenge in our lives. I mean, just think about your life for a moment. I'm sure that there's been a time in your life where you faced something difficult, where you've been through some tough things. And you're pretty thankful that there was somebody there by your side to encourage you through it, to pull you through it, to listen to you through it to just be there with you. I can think of many, many instances in my life where I've been so thankful to have other people in my life just to pull me out of a pit that I fell into, that I stumbled into, that came out of nowhere. I'm thankful that I've been roped off to certain people who have been able to recognize that in me and actually call me back out of that and back on the path to what God has for me. It's an incredible thing. Of course, you know, sometimes in life we, we stay away from relationships because, um, you know, we don't have to, we don't want to have to deal with difficult people, right? 
and we just think people are so difficult. I mean, what other kind of people are there if we're being honest with ourselves? We're all difficult. So often we don't want to have to deal with difficult people. You know, um, the playwright George Bernard Shaw and Winston Churchill, they famously sort of had this rivalry and they didn't really like each other. And at one point out of duty, Shaw invited uh, Winston Churchill to the opening night of uh, one of his new plays that was premiering in London. And he sent the invitation to Churchill and the invitation said, here are two tickets to tonight's opening. Um, bring a friend if you have one. <laughs> Which I just think is such a great burn. What a good dig. You know, that's awesome. And, um, you know, unfortunately, Winston Churchill wasn't able to attend. And so he replied to Shaw and he said, I'm unable to attend the opening night uh, because of a previous engagement. Uh, so instead, I'll attend the second night if there is one. <laughs> Isn't that perfect? I think that's just incredible. I think it's amazing. You know, we've all had to deal with difficult people in our lives. But we need to remember this. Other people don't create your spirit, they reveal your spirit. It's a big difference. And because of the fact that God loves you, and that he wants to grow you, and that he wants to shape you, he's going to send some difficult people your way. But take heart, because you're the difficult person he's sending to somebody else's life, okay? Just so you know. The French philosopher Pierre Teilhard de Chardin wrote, Someday, after we have mastered the wind and the waves the tides and gravity, we will harness for God the energies of love. And then for the second time in the history of the world, man will have discovered fire. I wonder, uh, you know, how do you develop these relationships? How do you develop these, the, the, these roped off, connected relationships? How do you meet people? Well, you know, I would uh, really quite simply say that getting involved here at church is a great way to begin. Uh, get yourself involved in a team. There's people around you that are going to care for you. They're going to notice you. They're going to see you. They're going to recognize when you are and when you're not at a place. And, and um, also, we've got these great things called connect groups here at Slate Church. And if you're not in one, I mean, we talk about this all the time. I do just want to give another push. Get yourself involved in a connect group. They meet every other week for one hour. It's a low-level commitment, but it's so much more than just a commitment on your calendar because your connect group is really your rope team in life. You know that? It's a group of people that you're actually roped off to, that, are you, that you are connected to, that will encourage you through all the hill country areas of your life. And why not ask God, even in this new year, maybe you're sitting here and maybe you don't feel like you've got enough life-giving relationships. Maybe you feel that that's something you crave. Don't be afraid to ask God for that. Don't be afraid to pray to him and ask for that to be the case. But then you got to make sure that you've got your eyes open and that you're willing to actually see the relationships that he is bringing into your life. And we got to remember that life-giving relationships don't happen overnight. Right? You're not going to have one of these 30-year friendships in a day. That's just, you know, you're going to hang out for uh, one coffee and that's going to be it. That's not how it works. You actually got to be willing to put in the work. You got to be willing to put in the commitment, put in the sacrifice, put in uh, the responsibility. Relationships take a lot of work. And so if you're here today and you're not willing to put in any of the work, uh, don't complain about the fact that you might not have any friends in your life. All right? And that, that's just the reality of it. We got to actually be willing to put in the work if we want to develop life-giving relationships. But as we do, we can ourselves to people in such a way that we can go after all the challenges, the difficulties, the adversity of life, and we can conquer it in such a, a great and a powerful way. All right, number three, the hill country reveals a hope beyond ourselves. I love that Caleb held on to a hope that was bigger than himself through it all. 
He knew that he couldn't do it on his own. He knew that even though his own vigor was great, it wasn't enough for what God was actually calling him to do. But he was filled with this great hope because he knew that God would be with him and he knew that God was going to fulfill his promise. You know, when circumstances look terrible in life, maybe you're here today and you're dealing with a struggle when it comes to your health. Maybe your hope is just sliding away. Maybe your finances are shrinking. Maybe, you know, you're just going through the worst time ever and you're starting to wonder, is anything going okay? Is anything going well in my life? And I want you to know today that the answer to that is yes. Maybe you're unable to come to that conclusion on your own, so allow me to come to that conclusion on your behalf tonight. Yes, there is great things that are happening in your life. There's an opportunity to trust in God every single step of the way. There's an opportunity to trust in him even when trusting in him isn't easy. That is still a door that is wide open for you to walk through. If it feels like every other door is being slammed in your face, the door of trusting God when you don't feel like trusting God is wide open. And if you would want, you can actually walk through that door. I love what John Ortberg says. He says, the prospect of modeling hope for a hope-needing world is trending upward. Come on, praise God. The possibility of cultivating a storm-proof faith is going upwards. This is so because one thing remains unchanged. God remains sovereign. Grace beats sin. Prayers get heard. The Bible endures. Heaven's mercies spring up new every morning. The cross still testifies to the power of sacrificial love. The tomb is still empty, and the kingdom that Jesus has announced is still expanding without needing to be bailed out by human effort. Come on, praise God for that. God is still in the business of redemption, and he specializes in bringing something good out of a bad situation. we got to remember that there is a hope that's beyond ourselves. You know, there was a woman named Julian of Norwich. She was also named, uh, known as Dame Julian. And she uh, wrote the oldest surviving English book that was ever written by a woman, and it was written in the 14th century. And she was living in black plague-infested England. People were dying all around, but she was filled with hope. It was a hope that was beyond herself, a hope that was beyond all the death and despair that she could see around her. And in the midst of all of this death, she wrote this. She wrote, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. He did not say, you shall know no storms, no travails, no diseases. He said, you shall not be overcome. In this next year, I want to encourage you to allow the hill country, the hardships of life, to reveal to you the hope that is beyond you. And of course, we learned this Christmas season that that hope has a name. The name of hope is Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. He is our refuge. He is our strength. He is an ever-present help in times of trouble. And tonight, I want to leave you just in closing with one more story. It's another story about great hope in the face of adversity. It also happens to be another story about an Antarctic explorer, okay? So go with me on this. But his name uh, was was Sir Ernest Shackleton. And Shackleton was an Anglo-Irish explorer, and he's one of the main characters, really, of what is known as the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. And he led three separate expeditions to Antarctica, But it would be his last that he's most famous before. You see, Shackleton led a crew of 22 men. And on December 5th, 1914, 
His ship, aptly named the Endurance, departed from the island of South Georgia and headed south to the Weddell Sea that is just off the coast of Antarctica. But as they were going, they encountered more and more and more ice until eventually on the 19th of January, 1915, their ship got stuck in the pack ice. It's recorded that the ship was like an almond in a chocolate bar. It was just stuck there. They were just left to simply float along in this ice, had no way of communicating to anybody else for help. So there they are, stuck in the middle of this ice, floating around off the coast of Antarctica, impossible to signal anybody for help. And the worst thing is that they ended up realizing, they knew that the only way they were going to get out of this ice was to wait for spring to come so that the ice would melt. The problem, of course, is that spring was 10 months away. So they decided they needed to hunker down. And all of a sudden on the ship, that was it. They had to just wait it out and they maintained their chores. They tried to keep spirits up. It's amazing how they held on to hope even in the midst of this situation. Um, there's incredible photos of this online. You should go home and you should look it up. It's amazing to see what these guys would do. They would play soccer out on the ice together. Uh, they would uh, do their chores every day. They would scrub the boat, even though they were stuck there in the ice, but they still had hope. But they waited from that January until the following October, they were stuck. Again, they didn't give up. But suddenly on October 24th, as finally the ice was melting, the ice shifted in such a way that it put extreme pressure on the hull of the ship, and it ended up cracking the boat, and the boat ended up sinking. As the boat is sinking, they're stranded there. Shackleton orders the men to carry as many supplies off onto the ice as they could. And they took off the lifeboats, these small 20-foot boats, and they, they put them on the ice. And they watched as their ship, the Endurance, sank into the Arctic Ocean, into the into this Antarctic Ocean. And they were just sitting there. There's nothing that they could possibly do. Suddenly they are there. They are stranded on the ice. Their ship is now gone. And they don't know what else to do, so instead they just set up camp. And so there they are, still floating around on the ice, and they have now set up camp. For months they camped on this ice, hoping that perhaps it would drift somewhere where they could be saved. And then on April 9th, months and months now, remember the boat sunk in October, uh, early November. Now it's April. They've been camping on the ice for this long more than a year after they had gotten stuck. And the ice that they were camping on suddenly started to break apart. And this would have been great if they had a ship, but unfortunately all they had were some small boats. And so Shackleton ordered his men to quickly pack themselves in to the boats. And so they got themselves in these two 20-foot lifeboats. And they had no other hope but to sail to the nearest island. Of course, the nearest island was not as close as we might like it to be. The nearest island was 557 kilometers away. So they sailed for five straight days, day and night, through terrible weather, freezing cold sea. Eventually, they made it to this desolate place called Elephant Island. And this was the first time that they stood on solid ground for 497 days. But they still held out hope. Even though this island was a terrible place to live, it was nothing more than a small rock in the middle of the sea. It was far from shipping routes. Nobody would ever discover them there. But still Shackleton didn't give up. I mean, this is like a give me the hill country kind of guy to the max, okay? Like I think most other people would have given up hope. Most other leaders, most other crews, that would have been the end for them when the ship sunk. But they did not give up hope at all. Instead, 
Shackleton decided that the only way they could get rescued was for him to go out and to try and make his way to the island of South Georgia from where they sailed initially. So he set out with five other men, hoping that they could make it to this whaling station. And so in a tiny 20-foot lifeboat, they made their way. But this wasn't an easy journey. They had to sail more than 1,300 kilometers across the open ocean in a 20-foot lifeboat. They sailed for 15 straight days, and finally they came within sight of the island. But unfortunately, a hurricane developed when they were trying to land. <laughs> the same hurricane sunk a steamship on the other side of the island and they weren't able to make landfall and they battled against the waves for more days and days and days finally they were able to make landfall but when they did they realized that they landed on the wrong side of the island and the only way to get to the whaling station was to climb mountains that had never been climbed or mapped before and get to the other side of this island so Shackleton still holding on to hope uh, decided that he would go. He left two of his men and, and he brought the rest with him and they climbed and for 36 straight hours without stopping, without sleeping, they climbed 51 kilometers over mountains that had never been climbed before. And finally he made it to the whaling station where he was able to radio for a steamship that was to come and rescue him and go back to Elephant Island and pick up his men. The problem was that the steamship couldn't get to them for another three months because the ice was so bad. So they had to wait three months at the whaling station. The people left on Elephant Island didn't know if they were alive, didn't know if they were dead, didn't know what was going on. They had been on that island now for over four and a half months. The whole journey was nearing two years now, and they didn't know what was happening. Finally, the steamship came. It picked up Shackleton. It went around. It picked up the other men on the island. And finally, they were able to go to Elephant Island where they saw, and every single one of those men was still alive. And they rescued all 22 of those men and sailed home. It's an incredible, incredible story of what it looks like to not give up in the face of adversity and to actually hold on to hope. I think it's amazing. Imagine what would happen. If we approach 2020 with the same vigor, the same boldness in the face of adversity, the same unwavering hope that Shackleton had. I mean, let's do it. Imagine what could be. Shackleton saw his men rescued. Might we see our fa family and our friends rescued? Might we see people who are addicted and caught in sin rescued? Is it too bold for us to say that we might see our city rescued? Is it too bold a claim to make? I don't think it is. Why can't we say it? Why can't we pray, God, give us the hill country. Allow us to have this boldness in the face of adversity. Allow us to have this unwavering faith, this unwavering hope. Allow us to do this, God, that you would be glorified as we press forward, not by our strength, but by your power at work in us. Come on, as we face challenges and as we face difficulties and setbacks and struggles, let's allow them to point to the hope that we have that is beyond ourselves. That we would remember what Paul writes in Romans 5, 3 to 5, when he says uh, our, that we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. 
perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let's have a faith like Caleb had. Let's have a give me the hill country kind of attitude that says whatever adversity, whatever difficulty, whatever enemy, whatever battle, I'm going to go forward knowing that God, you are on my side and I will hold on to your promises. Thank you for watching. Again, if you were impacted by this message in any way, send an email to mystory@slatechurch.com. You can also visit slatechurch.com and fill out one of our online connect cards. We would love to see you in person at one of our Sunday services. As well, you can stay connected with us by following us at Slate Church on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.